Well, good afternoon, everybody. Again, my name's Ross, and uh, any Packer fans out there? Can I get any love? Hey, I see one. There we go. That's all I need. Keep me going throughout the message here. Um, we are two days away from one of the biggest summer holidays that we all know, 4th of July. And when we think of holidays, uh, typically there's images that pop into our minds alongside those holidays. Like for 4th of July, potentially it's sparklers, maybe it's a barbecue. Um, but for me, over the last 10 years, there's been a really kind of strange image that pops into my mind. Uh, and I think we have it right here. It's Joey Chestnut dominating at the hot dog eating contest that happens once a year. He eats like 70 or 80 hot dogs. And he just, every year, he's like a fit guy. He trains his stomach. It's just, it's like a train wreck. I have to watch it. And it's like, oh no, why is this a thing? But I, I have to. So that's what pops into my mind when I think about 4th of July. And we live our lives with other categories besides holidays, like uh, sports or like the Packers for me when I think of the football. Um, but basketball, basketball wrapped up last year. We got some NBA fans. I know Taylor's in the house. He loves the NBA. Uh, and so when you think about the NBA, who comes to mind when you think about the NBA? Maybe it's LeBron. Maybe it's Luca if you're a Mavs fan. But if you grew up in the 90s, who's the one guy who comes to mind? MJ, let's see it. I mean, he's just great. I mean, you can't argue with six championships, his determination, his excellence, just, just everything about him exudes being a winner. And so that's why we think of him when we think about the, about the NBA. Now, what about technology? When you think about your phone in your pocket or your computer, what brand comes to mind when you think of technology? Apple, right? And Apple has dominated the market over the last 20 years because of its elegant design, its simplicity, uh, just the high quality products that it has. So we use that image of an Apple when we think about technology. Now, food as well. Let's get beyond hot dogs. When you think about soft drinks or French fries or burgers, what iconic logo pops in your head? The golden arches, right? And so 68 million people are served every single day across the world. Some people are like, ooh, that's probably not a good thing. Um, <laughs> and they, but you can't help but think they're dominant in the fast food market. Uh, in fact, one out of every eight people, I think, in the United States at some point has worked at McDonald's. I got to know, has anybody worked at McDonald's? Yes, Jackson, yes. All right. Dude, I didn't know. This is, we're getting to know each other better. Um, <laughs> and so McDonald's is kind of like the Kleenex of fast food. It's like, hey, can I have a Kleenex? You're not actually asking for a tissue. You're ask, asking for a brand name. And so they've become synonymous with a dominance in that market. And we think about faith. We're at church right now. You think about religion. What person, what centerpiece comes to mind? This is a softball. We got Jonathan Rumi, actually. <laughs> Okay, TV Jesus. I really recommend the show, The Chosen. Uh, but Jesus is Google searched millions and millions of times every single month with people trying to figure out answers to who he really is and what he's about. And what Jesus is passionate about isn't so much sports, food, or technology, but the gospel, which literally means good news of his 
unconditional, amazing love that he is available for each and every one of us. And so Jesus, when you think about him, he wants you to think about the gospel. And Jesus highlights one particular person as a representation of the gospel. In fact, he says this in Mark 14, verse nine. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus is saying, when you think about Christianity, the good news of what I've done, sacrificially dying for you so that you know the depths of my love, think in that same breath about what this woman did as well. And I'm like, what? There's no other scripture that gives that kind of honor to anyone else. So we ask, who is this woman and what did she do? Well, her name is Mary, and you may be familiar with two people, Mary and Martha, where Martha's like the, just the, the type A, task-oriented, get-stuff-done person, and uh, her sister is the one chilling, like asking Jesus questions, learning about life, and she's given a little bit more honor than Martha. It's that Mary that we're talking about. Now, there's some interesting backstory, but before we get into this story of Mary, Mary and why Jesus highlights her, and what happens before this is Mary's brother, whom she's really close with, dies. There's this conflict in the story. His name is Lazarus, and he's sick, and he passes away when Jesus is gone. Mary knows that Jesus could have saved him, but he's not there. There's nowhere for him to be found. Four days go by. He's buried in a tomb. Imagine the turmoil that she felt, having done some ministry with him, been around him for a while, knowing the power that Jesus has, that in the blink of an eye, she could have saved him, but he didn't. I may have thought, Jesus, what gives here? I thought we were friends, and you let my brother, my own flesh and blood, pass away before my eyes. And what I love about Mary is her vulnerability, her honesty before God. And this is an aspect of what makes her brave. Let's look at her interaction with Jesus. Martha says, the teacher is here and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Now, I can't imagine what it would have been like to see Jesus weep. It's this picture of powerful empathy in the midst of his divinity. So Mary, she, I believe she was brave to confront Jesus about her feelings. What many of us can do around an authority figure is maybe hold on to frustration or bitterness or fear because it's just difficult. It's too tough to talk about the painful things that happen to us. 
But what God is inviting us to is to be authentic with him, where we could come to him in our weakness, in the messy middle, where we really don't have answers. Underneath every brave person is vulnerability. Underneath every brave person is this foundation of vulnerability. Why? Because vulnerability is inherent in every single brave action. When Mary opens up her heart to Jesus and makes her stand out, and others, again, they may be too timid or scared to put Jesus on the spot. And Jesus doesn't respond with like defensiveness or indifference, but with this unbelievable amount of compassion. He weeps with her. He's present with her. Just like he's got done finishing the notebook for the first time. I mean, he's there. That's it's an older movie, sorry. Um, Mary experiences Jesus in this powerful, intimate way because of her willingness to be vulnerable with him. And not only that, but as you see further down in this story in John chapter 11, we can see Jesus walk up to the tomb where her brother was laid dead and he calls Lazarus' smelly, semi-decayed body out for his second round of life. Jesus not only enters into our pain, but brings healing. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's emotional, but it's always spiritual. That's the background. So what did Mary actually do that was so noteworthy? Are you ready for it? The story that should be known around the world every time the gospel is told. Can I get a little bit of drum roll? We don't have a drummer up here, all right? Yeah, there we go. Let's get, let's get going here. John 12, one through eight. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, classic Martha, right? While Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, wait, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money back, he used to keep himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. All right, at first glance here, this seems like a sweet, kind gesture by Mary, maybe some unique Middle Eastern hospitality that we don't really know about. So what's the big deal? Let's dive deeper. We need to wrap our minds on how lavish this display of love is. So the Greek text, which is what the New Testament's written in, there's the phrase, a year's wages. It, it's literally 300 days wages. That's how much this perfume is worth. And it's gone in a moment, in, a, in this instant of honor and love. Now, time out. Think about what she could have bought with this perfume. Honestly, if I'm Mary, I might have been like, okay, this is some strong stuff. I'm gonna put a few drops on the feet, wipe the hair. He's gonna feel loved. I still keep most of my treasure here. Everybody's happy. But what we need to do here is remember the context. Her brother was 
brought back to life. And Jesus is the one who raised him. He is the resurrection and the life. So there's no measuring the value of Jesus. There's no trying to like quantify his worth. So there's no way to calculate, okay, this is how much his love's worth. There's no way to put Mary's heart on a scale and say this much affection for Jesus and no more. Jesus is inexpressibly wonderful. So Mary's affection is inexpressible as well. They match up together. And look at Jesus' feet for a second. (laughs) She pours this lavish love on his feet. I mean, these are dirty, human-smelling feet. And she does this because of her deep love for him. You don't put the best ointment on his head and the worst ointment on his feet because the lowliest part of Jesus is infinitely more precious than the highest of what we can give. And ladies, I'm a guy, I'm losing my hair, so I can't relate as much here. But I can guess that your hair is pretty important to you for those who have their hair. Verse 3b, she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And I'm like, there's got to be a towel somewhere, right? Now, do you remember the story of Peter when he's on the boat all night casting those nets? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Jesus, he's with Jesus. He's like, just try it again. Huge catch of fish. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What's happening here is the goodness and the power of Jesus made Peter feel utterly unworthy in that situation. And I think it's the same thing here with Mary. In ancient Israel, a woman's hair was the most beautiful and the cleanest thing that they possessed. What Mary did magnified Jesus' purity and his sweetness. She considered it an honor to turn her hair into a rag for his feet. And look at the whole room of people at this dinner party. At the end of verse three, it says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Listen, heartfelt worship of the king is never only private. It always spills over onto others. Why? Because love expands, it doesn't contract. We can't help but love expand outward. The heartfelt sacrificial of affection was for Jesus. But get this, everybody was blessed, even Judas. Unfortunately for him, Judas, his greed and his selfishness blinds him of this unreal moment of grace. And so my question for you is which person are you more like at this dinner table? Your knee-jerk reaction might be to say, Ross, come on. I'm not cold-hearted like Judas. Clearly, he was only out for personal gain and didn't value the worth of Jesus. But I would like to admit to you that if I dig deeper, I can see Judas' response in my daily life. And what I mean here is that I'm a pretty efficient, practical person. It's not natural for me to be spontaneous and buy High-end things are gifts for people, like out of the blue. And and it's not natural for me to think and act like Mary. And it brings me to this question. Is your spirituality rooted in practicality? 
Is your faith coming to church? Everything you do for God is the main foundation rooted in what's practical for you. Maybe you say, I pray short and sweet prayers. I give when I should. I help others when it works for me. If God doesn't ask me to do something, then I assume all is good, and I just keep on staying in my lane. I wake up in the morning, and I look at my to-do list, check things off. Good stuff. I help my, my wife, my kids. Uh, I live a life, you know, trying to be kind to people. But if God nudges me to do something maybe that's going to be uncomfortable or inconvenient, then it's like, maybe I just had some bad Chinese. Like, I don't know if this is from you, God. I may just, you know, postpone this random feeling I'm having. And I'm telling you, I've done that so many times in my life. I've missed out on the beauty and grace of these amazing moments that I can bring the love of God to others, as well as receive that love from God in moments in my life because of my practical mindset. I think marriage is a fantastic analogy to how God wants us to love him. A healthy marriage, let me caveat that. <laughs> a few weeks, in a few weeks, my wife Emily and our family are going to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So I grew up as a kid in the Midwest uh, going to to South Carolina, like for a summer vacation, most summers. And when I got to be a teenager, I started to play golf. It's my favorite sport now. And um, I'd play with my dad, my brother, and we'd have a great, it was a great vacation. And about six, seven years ago, we brought our kids for the first time as like adults with my parents, my wife's parents. And I'm pumped for this vacation because it means beach and golf. Uh, but the context is we have little kids. Anybody who's got little kids knows that vacation and little kids doesn't mean parent fun for like the whole trip, right? <laughs> kids, we love you. I'm just, I'm just calling a spade a spade. Um, but anyway, so we go on this trip like six or seven years ago and I, I was, was Ross-centered in this trip. So I focused on how many rounds of golf can I get in with my father-in-law, my dad, and make sure, um, you know, sweet and kind of, my mom, her mom, and her, my wife, uh, but try to like sneak that out without like getting destroyed by my, my wife. Um, and so after like the fifth day of golf on the trip, I was like, hey, honey, like, how are you doing? Are you having a good vacation? And she's like, like, uh, we need to have a hard conversation. And so she's very patient, very loving with me, but she proceeded to share with me that this vacation was really more for me and not for her. And she was completely right. I had become absorbed in my own desires that I forgot about honoring her and loving her and proactively thinking about her needs before my own. And I remember her saying, Ross, I just wish you took a minute and thought about how I can be loved on this trip. And... <laughs> And so I responded by like booking her a massage the next day and like making sure she had some time. But it was all a response to a pain point versus me being open and mindful of how I can love her without her asking. And I believe the sweetest moments in our marriage are when we have both surprised each other with things, when it's cost us something. Maybe it's a random gift that was a little bit more expensive than what was reasonable or practical. It's a unique date night where I plan it out on Yelp. I'm like, we're going to go here and we're going to go here and then we're going to finish the night here. And she's like, whoa, this is so thoughtful. This, is, this means a lot to me. 
Or maybe it's a, a note of encouragement, a sticky note, or a bunch of them around the house when the kids have been tearing it up all day and, <laughs> and, and it's been a stressful week. Those are the moments that I believe bring this level of depth and love to our marriage like nothing else. And so here's the key. If there's one thing that I want you to take away, it's this. Unsolicited worship divinely unites us with the love of God. God's love is there for you. His love is unconditional. But when we proactively and boldly come into this place of worship, I don't have to be brave to do that. We look at Mary and we say, man, she was so brave to like meet with Jesus and weep in front of her and be real and raw. And then so brave to pour out her whole life savings on his feet. But here's my hunch. She wasn't like, all right, I got to do this for Jesus. Ah, oh, this is all my perfume. I guess I should do this. You know, this is the right thing. It was this, God, I just, I love you so much. I'm just so in awe of your grace, of your goodness for me. Like, I'm not having to think about this. I'm just responding freely because of your love, because of the power of your grace in my life. Mary is brave because of this unsolicited worship. And this is what gives Jesus the most glory. Judas is on the other end of the spectrum, solicited greed. He makes no effort to stop, or he makes an effort to stop a great act of devotion to get his piece of the pie. Hidden under this veneer of wisdom. This isn't wise, this is not the practical thing to do. And as we read this passage, I think we need to ask ourselves the difficult question, does any area of our life resemble Judas in his response? Let's be real. Let's be real about this. And maybe, maybe you're in a season where you have kids and they're starting to get interested in church or maybe they're asking hard questions. They're like, man, I want to go to youth group. I want to... I want to learn more about God. But in the back of your mind, you're like, well, camp this summer is during like a sports thing and I want you to do that. And youth group on Wednesday nights, like there's, there's other stuff for school that you can get ahead in. So I don't know if you should do that. Like it doesn't seem maybe wise to just spend all the time at church to, to learn. Like I could help you with some of that. But it, it's under this guise of wisdom that maybe we don't go so deep in our faith. And you make the decision to skip out on God time because you want your kids to have the best opportunities with their clubs or their teams. And maybe you've got a job that requires a lot of attention, like a lot of time, and it takes you away from your kids or your spouse, but you rationalize and say, man, we're just, we're making great money with this job, even though I'm gone a bunch of weekends or nights. And it's easy to go down this slope of practicality. And so we don't connect with God and worship. And like Mary, it, it takes bravery to let go of fear. Fear of financial security, of what other people think if I like go all out in my faith and are they gonna judge me or mock me or just not wanna be friends with me anymore. But here's the thing, like Mary, when you are so, you are so connected to God, 
those voices of fear, of doubt, of insecurity start to fade. So the answer is not, I gotta try to be more brave. I gotta try to like worship more. It's to simply allow, allow the goodness of God to flood your heart, your mind, and your soul. And just say, God, keep bringing it. Let me open, because your, your love is so expansive. It is so breathtaking and amazing. I'm stuck in my head trying to live a practical, effective, efficient life. Allow me just to release that. Let me, let me walk in the spirit. And so that I don't have to try to be brave when I follow you. I don't have to try to worship you harder and harder. But it's just simply a reaction. It's a byproduct because my heart is so filled up with the grace of God. That's the direction that we need to head. And so as I think of Mary and I think about the Air Jordans that you and I wanted as a kid, just do it, okay? Make the decision to say, you know what? God, this week, I'm gonna open up my heart in a way that maybe is a little vulnerable. That's a little uncomfortable for me. Maybe I'm gonna, I'm gonna give more than what's comfortable. I'm gonna give my time, I'm gonna give my finances in a way that's gonna push me to quiet that voice of practicality and come out of a voice of, God, you have saved me. You love me unconditionally. I can't help but respond in this way. What if every morning when you woke up, you, you meditated in your bed for two minutes on the love of God? that you are a child of the kingdom, that the kingdom of heaven is actually and literally inside of every cell of your body, and that God wants to activate you as a, as a light worker of love, of peace, of joy, of the fruits of the spirit to go out into your community, to your family, to your workplace. How would that change the way you lived? How would that erase your fears, your comparison, your temptation? So as we wrap this up, I want us to sit with this idea of surrender. It was funny right before this message, during that communion song, the song, I didn't even talk to the band, was about having uh, the perfume broken <laughs> your feet, if you guys remember. And I think that's God just reiterating this, this stance of worship. Jesus wanted Mary's story to be told because the amount of love that flowed from her to him and him to her was inexpressible. And that's the gospel, everybody. That is the gospel. Her vulnerability through unsolicited worship highlighted what it looks like to follow Jesus. As it did with Mary, worship begins when you realize that you are in desperate need of God and he's willing to pour everything out on you like Mary did to him. And what's gonna happen is this joy is gonna infuse your soul, a peace that surpasses understanding, this carefree, no holds barred response that we have lifts up the name of Jesus. And so I wanna invite our prayer response teams forward. If you're on that team, come up by the front. What we do every single week, every single service is we allow you to respond, us to respond as a church. And maybe your first step is to just come and receive prayer. 
to come and receive the grace of God to fill up your heart. Where all these thoughts of maybe fear of, I don't know if I could do that, that's not practical, I don't know if that makes sense. You just start to quiet that voice and allow the voice of God to flood you instead. And so as we look to Jesus, as we look to the gospel, we look to this moment with him and Mary, and we say, yes, God, let us worship like that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this opportunity to come together as a church, as a community of people that are from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different cultural dynamics, like all of us are different. And where we could come together and you could unite us in such a beautiful way, corporately as a church, but, but individually as well, where our hearts can be surrendered to you where we say yes to worshiping in you, that opens the floodgates of love, love to flow on us and not just stay with us, but because it's expansive, that love is gonna go onto our neighbors later today, to our kids who are struggling with something later this week, to the people you bring in front of us, God, let us be empowered to love like Mary and to love like you. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.